Hope you're having a great Labor Day weekend. Thanks for checking out our fall preview episode. And it's brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey Chris. It is our Labor Day weekend fall preview special. We've got a conversation with restaurant industry expert David Henkes. But guys, let's take a step back from the news of the week and think about the rest of 2019. We've got Apple's event in September. We've got Disney's video streaming service that launches in November. And of course, the most important time of the year for so many retailers with Thanksgiving, Christmas, all the holidays. Andy Cross, let me start with you. What's going to be on your radar this fall in terms of business-related events? Chris, I don't know if you've paid attention to what's happening to big tech this year, but apparently there's some not-so-fans of what's happening with them from the investigations from the DOJ and from the FTC, Department of Justice, uh, the FTC making some um, investigations. But what happens starting January is in California, they, they had passed the, the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act. So there's a lot of conversation as these companies, all companies really are now have to deal first with GDPR over in Europe, now with the CCPA in California. So what I'm really watching is the continued conversation around the regulatory environment, um, the antitrust environment, what is happening from the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, um, Alphabet, Google, how these companies continue to manage a landscape when uh, congressional investigations and regulatory bodies continue to come after them. So, I'm ahead of the launching and the uh, CCPA going into effect in January, I'm kind of watching how these companies continue to evolve this landscape. You think it's possible any of the politicians on either side of the political aisle running for president in 2020 might take some shots at big tech over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I mean, it's the next 12 to 18 months, Chris, is going to be just fascinating to watch their watch from the political landscape. You know, even over the next few months ahead of January, I'm just watching to see how these companies they're going to spend a lot of dollars dollars lobbying, but just how they continue to talk about privacy and regulatory issues um, from the big picture for them. Jason Moser, what about you? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned um, Disney's streaming service, and that's really that's one of the things I'm excited to watch because number one, I think as as time goes on here, we're learning more about what Disney Plus is going to be, what it's going to offer, and I mean, we were talking about this before taping. It really does seem like they have a lot of stuff for every age group from babies to teenagers to adults like us. And, um, you know, I, I think it was really fascinating to see at the the D23 conference they had here recently, where they were starting to talk about all the different stuff that Disney as a company is doing. And they pulled, you know, pulled back the curtain a little bit on this streaming service, announced a lot of the content. Uh, you know, it was impressive to me that, that some somebody on the management team, somebody on the executive team had the wherewithal to say, you know what, let's go ahead and take pre-signups, because people are going to be really enthusiastic about this content right as we 
we show it all to them. We'll get people to go ahead and sign up for this thing early. Remember, it doesn't launch until November 12th. Um, at $6.99, that's a great deal. $6.99 a month, it's really hard to argue with that. They're going to bundle it, of course, with ESPN Plus and Hulu uh, ad-supported product for people who want uh, more than just the Disney Plus. But it's also worth noting they have a deal out there. Buy two years, get the third year free. I mean, it's almost... It's kind of like Mac and Costco, right? You're doing yourself a disservice if you don't subscribe at this point. And now, I mean, they're setting themselves up to have even more pricing power through this. I think it's going to be just fascinating to watch how this plays out over the rest of the streaming landscape in the coming years. Well, and also you think about the ripple effects to the other big players in the video streaming space. Uh, presumably, we're going to get more information from Apple about Apple Plus. And uh, let's not forget Comcast looming out there heading into 2020. Uh, they say they're on track to launch uh, NBC Universal's uh, streaming service as well. And of course, a little company called Netflix. Little company called Netflix. I mean, I think all of these possibles, these potentials, they, they are just that. At this point, I think it's going to be really uh, fascinating to see how this plays out on Netflix, just because they're going to lose so much content so quickly. And not only are they losing that content, but they're really losing the potential for that future content as well. So again, I feel like Netflix is one of those staples that a lot of people will continue to subscribe to. I just I wonder how much more they're going to be able to raise prices given the content wars. It seems like uh, the last few months of the year there's really more noise for investors than there is at any other time during the year. Um, particularly as we head into the fall, Andy, you get more people beating the drum for a potential recession. As we mentioned, the presidential primaries are heating up. There's going to be a lot of noise. So, that makes it easier for investors to miss things. What is something you want to highlight and encourage investors not to miss? Yeah, Chris, I put this out in Twitter. There's always been a wall of worry that, that the media loves to talk about. And certainly, we have issues that are real. Brexit, the UK may leave the EU without a deal. We have an inverted yield curve, which which historically has has um, implied that maybe with a recession's on the way, we have earnings growth that's only going to be about two to three percent for the S and P five hundred companies this year. So it's not like things are completely gloomy, or completely um, cheery. And Chris, you mentioned the political environment, but I think it's really important for investors to maintain and think about their perspective. So um, we are long-term investors. I think when you see these kinds of concerns, you have to understand that if I can't stomach the volatility, maybe I should have a little bit more cash on the sidelines. So really understanding your investing mentality. If you're investing for like your your um, as I am for my daughter's education, which is ten plus years away. That's a lot of time to be able to compound returns, and so the the blips of the volatility we may see not as much of a worry. But I think it's really under it's really important for investors to understand their mindset and really focus on their goals and then invest accordingly. Jason, what about you? Uh, a little bit in line with what Andy was talking about there at the beginning of the show. I just you know we're coming into a very polarizing election cycle here in 2020. And I just I would encourage investors not to miss the forest for the trees. And what I mean by that is, as with every election season, we're going to see a lot of political posturing. We're going to see a lot of promises made with the hope that those promises made will get the people making those promises elected. And we all know, generally speaking, it's really tough, really tough to actually uphold those promises mm -hmm. because you can't just call the shot yourself, right? We live in a democracy after all. Uh, but, but we do see a lot of posturing, and I think that what that can do, number one, it can create some fear. I think we're hearing a lot about how yep. uh, antitrust concerns play out with companies like Alphabet and Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Apple. I, I personally, I, I think that 
politicians are missing the point there with antitrust concerns. I think probably more along the privacy line, like you were talking about there, Andy. Uh, Andy but I think that this creates opportunities potentially over the coming year and beyond. When you see all of this political posturing, the headlines that go on, the market reacts to this stuff day after day, and uh, that volatility certainly can create some windows. So I would encourage investors just, just to keep keep a focus on the, the forest, not the trees, and make sure and uh, keep some money ready because there'll be some opportunities. Yep. I think. All right. Before we head into the break, one business prediction. It can be about a company, an industry, a CEO. Give me something, Andy. I think we may see Berkshire Hathaway make an acquisition. We talked about this in April. We all tossed out some ideas there. I said Sherwin Williams. That might be a little bit too big. Um, he owns Southwest. Maybe it could be Moody's. Maybe Travelers. I think. Uh, as stocks maybe go through of this volatile period, Jason just mentioned. You know, with interest rates really. F- continuing to fall, and they probably will fall, it looks like. I think we might see Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway put some of that massive cash they have um, on the balance sheet to work. We talk about having a watch list of stocks for when we have a little bit of cash and opportunity arises. Safe to assume Warren Buffett also has his own watch oh, list. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he does. And it's, it's very valuation centric. And that's why I was looking at Travelers, a $40 billion market cap, sells at 1.8 times book, and Berkshire already owns 2.3% of it. Or McCormick. I mean, or maybe McCormick. Of course, you McCormick. <laughs> Do you have a little bit of traveler stock? You worked there once upon a time. I, I, I do not anymore. No, I used to. I did work there for a spell, though, about a year before I came up here. All right, Very give, good business, well run, sure. Give me one prediction. Uh, yeah, crypto bulls don't take this the wrong way. I, I think that Libra, Facebook's Libra initiative, at the very least, will be put on hold. But really, I think Facebook's Libra initiative, as we know it today, is going to be dead in the water. Hmm. I just don't give this thing a chance in its current form. There are too many, too many regulatory concerns to begin with, but we're already seeing some of the partners that are signing up for this express some concern. Some of the partners are talking about backing out, and all it takes is a couple for the rest to sort of fall in line. Ultimately, when you look at the problem that Facebook is trying to solve, or at least the problem they say they're trying to solve, and bringing more services to the unbanked and underbanked, Listen, that's admirable, but inventing a new currency ain't the solution, Chris. So I think they need to go back to the drawing board. I just don't understand how this moves forward. Our email address is radio at fool.com for any crypto bulls who want to send a note, and we'll be sure to forward it to Jason. Coming up, our fall preview rolls on with more stock ideas. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. It's our fall preview. 2019, safe to say it's been a hot one for IPOs, but Jason, I'll start with you. Is there a private company out there that you'd like to see make the leap to the public market? Chris, there is, and it's not Chick-fil-A, believe it or not. Um, as you know, I, I head up our augmented reality service here at The Motley Fool. And one company I really would love to be able to get in there is Niantic. Uh, Niantic is the creator of uh, Pokemon Go. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, their follow-up hit with Harry Potter, Wizards Unite. Maybe not as big of a hit as, as, as uh, Pokemon Go, but still the technology is pretty sound. Uh, Niantic used to be a part of Google, actually. 
actually, and Google spun that out on its own. Google still owns uh, a little piece of it, I think maybe around 6%. Uh, but there is talk of Niantic going public. Uh, earlier in the year, they raised some more money uh, to about a $4 billion valuation. So, just a company that's doing a lot of neat things with augmented reality and gaming technology. I suspect we will see them go public, and I suspect I will have them on my watch list in short order. Andy, what about you? Chris, I'm building off the Peloton S1 that just filed sometime this week, and I'm looking at Strava. It's a company that handles it. It's an online tracking, fitness tracking. You may use Strava, Chris. I know you're a runner. Strava means strive in Swedish. It has 42 million users, um, and it adds 1 million users a month. They, I don't think they have any... Uh, site to go public, but it's a really sticky business for sticky uh, service. If you like to track your fitness online, it's very scalable, has a community of users. 80% of the user base is outside the United States. So, it's just a business that I, I use a lot, and it's uh, one that I would love to see um, get a little bit more uh, funding behind them. The last valuation was about $400 million, so it's not a small company, but still not a huge one either. We don't have an exact date on when WeWork is going public, but I, the, all the reporting is they're targeting an IPO in September. Uh, which one of the three of us is bringing the popcorn for that? Am <laughs> I the only, only one who thinks that's going to be uh, a memorable IPO, either for good reasons or for bad? I think we all need to bring the popcorn because it'll probably be very, uh, very entertaining. So, one of the things we talk about with stocks is the whole concept of leash. Um, how long a leash are you going to give a stock in your portfolio? So, Jason, what's a stock you think, whether you own it or not, needs to be on a short leash right now? Yeah, I mean, I'll preface this by going back to a year ago, my leash stock on our fall preview show was Chipotle. And fast forward to today, it's up about 100% or so. So, you're welcome, <laughs> investors. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, this year's leash stock, I, you know, I'm, I'm putting Tesla on a short leash. And, and I think you know, a couple of the reasons, you know, if you look at the company's financials, just a snapshot of the company's financials, I, I have a hard time believing that even one person out of 100 would, would say, oh, yeah, I want to invest in that, because their financials look atrocious. I mean, they actually don't even have the operating income to cover their interest expense. And that's that's a problem. I mean, so the company is always resorting to this sort of this financial chicanery, more or less, to keep things going. Uh, so, why would people invest in it? Well, clearly, Elon Musk and his vision. And that's fine. I appreciate that. I applaud it. I like Musk. I think I've been uh, very public in saying we need more people like him. But I do think that he needs to get things in order and prioritize what matters most to him. Because as we talk more about the potential for global re recession, geopolitical risk that may come about, when we start looking at some of these companies and how they may perform in tougher economic times, Tesla is set up to have a very rough go of it if we run into a buzzsaw here. So I think investors need to keep just a very close eye on it. Andy, what about you? JMO, you're not the only one with a little bit of egg or burrito on his face. <laughs> I, I think I was I was bullish on the bank stocks coming into this year, and obviously with the interest rate environment we've seen, it's been not Nobody a place to go. I, I still think it's going to be a low interest rate environment for now. I think it's going to be a lower interest rate environment, so that doesn't portend well for the bank stocks. So Axos Financial, the former bank of the internet, which had done so well, really in kind of helping to to grow online banking as a small bank, as a $2 billion bank. Um, I just think this one is going to struggle because so many of the big banks now are continuing to invest in online banking. I mean, Goldman is hiring more techies than they are bankers these days. So, uh, with a low rate interest rate environment, 
different uh, environment than when they were growing their business. And, and one of the first ones out there, I think Axos Financial is a place that I just don't think it's going to be a long-term winner from here. Well, I'll just add, as a group, the general sports retailers, not the individual ones. I'm certainly not talking about Nike and their individual stores, or even for that matter, a company like Columbia Sportswear, which has bricks and mortar locations selling their own stuff. I mean, you look back over the past five years, that stock has more than doubled. But just, and we talked about this recently on this show, the more I look at the environment that Foot Locker, Dick's Sporting Goods, mm-hmm. Hibbit, that they're all operating in, I just think I would stay far away from them. It's not to say they're all going the way of sports authority, but it really looks like a tough environment for the general sports retailers. It's difficult to come up with a compelling reason as to why they should prosper. Uh, Before we wrap up, let's go to the flip side. What is a stock... Jason, that you are even more bullish on now than you were a year ago. Yeah, it's one that I own. It's one that I recently added uh, more shares uh, to my position, and that's Etsy. Uh, you know, going through the most recent quarterly numbers here for the second quarter, I mean, the, the company continues to do so many good things with its with its niche craft market audience. Um, active sellers on the platform grew to over 2.3 million. Active buyers. More than 42.7 million, and their network pushed through about 1.1 billion dollars in gross merchandise sales for the quarter. And so, if you look at those metrics, those core metrics over time, they have done nothing but go up and to the right. These guys are just doing a lot of great things, um, and it, it is all bringing it. They're bringing it down to the bottom line. It's a profitable company. They make a, you know a decent, healthy amount of cash flow there. Um, Josh Silverman, the CEO, has been there, I think, for just a little over two years. Has just done really some tremendous things. I like his thinking about leadership and about the team that he assembles there at Etsy and, and, and the retail market writ large and how he shapes his team in regard to that view there. You look at the things that they're doing, they've got some catalysts on the horizon with a free shipping initiative they're introducing, a new unified platform called Etsy Ads, and they just wrapped up this acquisition of a company called Reverb, which is essentially like Etsy, but it's for musical instruments. So it adds another unique dynamic to that network that they didn't have before. Uh, I think there's just a lot to look forward to with this company. Andy Cross, what about you? I still like the trade desk symbol TTD. It's a ten billion dollar market cap leader um, in helping place helping big clients place ads online in the non walled garden. So not Facebook, not Alphabet. But if you are a a client who is looking to place ads online and more and more into like connected TV, Chris, as we continue to use things like Roku, Apple Streaming, Fire Stick. Um, the trade desk helps their clients reach more and more people in those newer environments. It's run by Jeff Green. He founded the company. He's, uh, he's built just a wonderful culture, owns 9% of the business, um, and it's just continues to grow at 40 to 50% a year. And as I look at the market and the market evolving online, I just think, and, and in these connected devices, as we are looking at different ways to embrace entertainment, I think adver- advertising support is going to be continue to be a place to go and to invest, and Trade Desk is making those investments, and it's doing well. Interesting that these two companies operate in spaces that, on the pa- on paper, you would think, who would try to launch an advertising business? Yep. Who would try to launch a retailer when Amazon looms out there? Anyway, interesting stuff. Andy Cross, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Up next, we're talking restaurants and beverages with industry expert David Henkes. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. David Henkes is a senior principal at Technomic, a global consulting firm for the food service industry. Recently, I got the chance to talk with David about a range of industry issues, including the rise of delivery, Chick-fil-A's success, trends to watch, and more. But I began our conversation by asking him about the current state of the restaurant business. Based on traditional metrics that we would usually look at for the health of the industry, things like consumer confidence, things like unemployment, things like disposable income, all of those are, are extremely healthy right now. I think you could argue that you know some of those are probably the best metrics we've seen in, in, in ages or you know in, in, a, in a long period of time. And yet the restaurant business, I would say, is challenged. It's certainly not in decline. It's certainly not, um, you know, people are still eating out, but it's not growing. We're essentially in a, in a state where um, traffic, and by traffic I mean people, you know, people's transactions or people visiting restaurants, is essentially flat. Uh, the growth is coming primarily through price increases and or mixed change, and by mixed change, I mean adding higher price, higher margin items to the menu where consumers are spending more. And so most of the growth that's coming from the industry is really being driven by those two, uh, you know, by those two activities, by those two initiatives, price increases and mixed change. And so what you fundamentally have is a business that's, you know, growing um, or, or not growing based on people coming in. And, and fundamentally, we worry about that because the value equation is starting to get skewed in restaurants to the point where, uh, and this has been going on for some time, but where, where the, you know, the value for a family of four or five uh, dying out is, is becoming unattainable. It's becoming so expensive that people aren't doing it. And so I think what you see is people spend to a level, right? And so as prices go up in the restaurants, people are spending to that. And what that means is they're not increasing their frequency. They're not increasing their visits. And so, you know, the industry is growing. We have the entire restaurant industry pegged to grow about 4.4% in 2019 and about 4% in 2020. So it's certainly not unhealthy, but again, you know, most of that growth is being driven by price increase and some of the underlying fundamentals remain pretty challenged and much more challenged than we would expect, given how good the economy has been for the last couple of years. You know, we talked about this recently on Motley Fool Money, the relative health of consumer spending in America right now. It's in good shape, and if you're a retailer, then it comes down to execution. And there are certainly major retailers that are doing well, they're executing well. Uh, both through e-commerce and in stores, um, and then you have others that just aren't getting it done. And I'm I'm thinking about the restaurant industry in similar ways. That if, for restaurants that are executing at a high level, um, then they're probably going to be better positioned than others. And I say all of that is a prelude to talk about delivery, because it seems like delivery is now one of those things for restaurants. That is table stakes. That if you don't have a delivery strategy, then you're probably not going to survive the next ten years. Is that reasonable? It is 
seems reasonable. And, and let me back up to your first point, because I think execution is key. But I think what we've seen in restaurants is sort of a dichotomy up here where their restaurants are meeting two different need states. Right. And one is the experiential need states where places like independent restaurants excel. Uh, and that's one reason chain sit down restaurants are struggling is because they don't necessarily provide a unique differentiated experience. So on the one hand, you've got this experiential factor, which is critical for that dine-in occasion. And then the other need state that restaurants are uh, you know, really migrating toward is convenience. And so you really need to be executing at a high level in probably one of those areas. And so fast food, right? I mean, McDonald's and you know, the drive-through and, and increasingly delivery is going to meet that need state of uh, convenience, you know, food on demand. And then, you know, people are still dining out and using their dining dollars as entertainment dollars, right? The, you know, the, the more they sit in and, and watch Netflix at home, I mean, there's still a need to go out and socialize and, and see your friends. And so dining becomes that entertainment dollar. And when you, when you want to be entertained, you're not necessarily going to go to a non-differentiated chain restaurant, right? You're going to go to a local restaurant. You're going to go someplace that has a great drinks program or is known for something or where you're going to get something you can't normally get. So that's sort of the state of where we are. And so the execution that you referred to, I think, has to be looked at in either are you executing on a unique point of difference or are you executing against the convenience given that consumers have what we would call hyper choice. Now, there's so many food options available now. And so how do you then appeal to hyper choice? Well, you need to be on the, the apps that they're using for uh, food on demand. So Grubhub and Uber Eats and Postmates and all of those. Um, and, uh, you know, I would argue that a lot of restaurants without delivery uh, would probably, you know, the industry would be even in a in a bigger state of misery right now without delivery because delivery right now, and just to give you some stats on it, because we've been following delivery now for some time. Uh, if you count third, part, well, delivery overall is about a forty billion dollar business. It's about seven percent of restaurant sales right now. That's overall delivery, both full service and limited service, and it includes the Domino's drivers that deliver their own pizza, as well as Postmates and Uber Eats and Grubhub and all of those. But third-party delivery um, in 2018 was about $10.2 billion. So if you put that in the context, and if you just said, all right, in aggregate, delivery is, is $10 billion, uh, that if you sort of assume that was one chain restaurant, that would be the fourth largest chain restaurant in the country. And so delivery has gone grown to such an extent that you're right, it's table stakes. And how you do it and whether you have your own drivers or whether you're using one of these third-party delivery apps uh, is up for discussion. But, um, but, but it absolutely is critical because that's how consumers are behaving now. And on that convenience-driven occasion that I talked about, delivery is increasingly the go-to solution for those consumers. A few days ago, I saw a term in the restaurant industry that I'd never seen before, and I'm hoping you can explain it for me. What is a ghost kitchen? So a ghost kitchen is essentially uh, a, well, and, and there's a number of terms for it, right? So ghost kitchen, dark kitchen, headless restaurant, these all refer to essentially kitchens that 
are creating food for the delivery occasion. So they do not have any kind of sit-down area at all. They only cater to delivery. And so what has happened as these, uh, you know, as delivery has grown, restaurateurs, as well as the third-party providers, have found that, you know, perhaps we don't need all of these in-store seats or perhaps, you know, we can make a living only by delivering food, not necessarily by having servers and wait staff and all of this, this stuff. And so we've seen, and, and it's hard to get a number around how many of them there are, right? I mean, it's, it's not as big as you'd think, but there's certainly on the West Coast and, you know, in, in places like New York, you have some of these where they get set up. And essentially, the only real real estate they have is that space on the app. Uh, with all the growth in these third-party delivery services, none of them are making money right now. And, and you know, times are good, and people are willing to pay $12 for their McDonald's delivery, right? I mean, you know, on a $6 meal, they're going to pay a lot more. But people have some extra money in their pocket, and they're feeling good about it. But I have a sense that if and when a recession hits, that these guys are going to get hit pretty hard. And so, you know, for anyone building a long-term strategy on a uh, dark kitchen, ghost restaurant, whatever you want to call it, I I think they've got to think twice about that because I'm not sure that long-term it's necessarily a solution. It's a great, great idea right now, but, you know, we'll see how it plays out over the next three to five years. Well, let's talk about a big restaurant. McDonald's franchisees came out earlier this year in a letter to company management and said loud and clear, we want you to prioritize a premium chicken sandwich. And this is aimed squarely at Chick-fil-A, which is not open on Sundays. So, the most recent things I've seen from McDonald's management was uh, pretty lukewarm in terms of a response. You obviously covered the industry a lot more closely than I do. Is McDonald's working on this? And if they're not, should they be? So the way I'll answer that is to say that everybody wants to be Chick-fil-A at this point, right? I mean, Chick-fil-A has executed beyond anyone's wildest imagination uh, in terms of just their growth, right? I mean, they're now over a a $10 billion chain. They grew almost 14% last year. Uh, and have been on this upward trajectory where they're doing, you know, a very high volume with for a chain that is, to your point, is not open on Sundays. So to a large degree, is it about the chicken? Yeah, listen, I mean, Chick-fil-A does a great chicken sandwich. Uh, they use a pressure cooker, which is very hard to execute. Uh, and, you know, McDonald's, um, it would be very hard for them to do that type of chicken in a McDonald's. So, I mean, the way Chick-fil-A does their, their chicken is a little bit different. But listen, I mean, Chick-fil-A's success is not only driven by the chicken sandwich, but it's driven by the overall excellence and the way they've structured their business, right? So the owner operators that they have, uh, the fact that, you know, each owner typically only runs one restaurant, right? I mean, they don't have big franchisee groups like McDonald's or some of the other big chains. Uh, most of the individual franchisees own one restaurant. And they do that intentionally to make sure that that owner-operator is focused solely on growing that business. Uh, the service and the hospitality that you get when you walk into a Chick-fil-A is second to none. 
and and is unique among quick service restaurants for you know for doing that. And so, so yeah, listen. I mean, the chicken sandwich is great, and I think they've got a you know they they obviously have a great product that people are clamoring for and that they line up the door for. But but the secret to Chick Fil A is not only in the the product; it's in how they treat their employees and how they treat their guests. And so. You know, I think you can argue, yeah, we want to have a great chicken sandwich, but unless you're doing everything else that Chick-fil-A is doing, you can have the best chicken sandwich in the world. It, it, you know, it may help a little bit, but you're never going to replicate what Chick-fil-A has done if, unless you replicate the entire model, and that's something that is very hard for McDonald's or any other quick service restaurant to do. What trends should investors be watching over the next few years? That answer coming up right after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. You know, well, I'm a chicken fry and cold beer on a Friday night. Quick shout out to NetSuite. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is the patchwork quilt of business systems. You know what I'm talking about. One system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory. It's big and inefficient, and it takes too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite's offering you valuable insights with a free guide. It's called Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash fool. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's get back to my conversation with food and beverage expert David Henkes. What is something on your radar right now that you think is going to be growing in the next couple of years? It could be an individual restaurant. It could be a restaurant concept. What should we be keeping our eyes on? Well, there's a couple things that as we give presentations, we talk about trends. And I would say the two that are most of interest to people right now, people in the industry, would be plant-based proteins, and I referenced earlier the Impossible Whopper, right? And so, people are people are not suddenly going vegan or vegetarian, but there is a, a overwhelming surge in demand for plant-based alternatives to meat. And whether it's because of Meatless Mondays, whether it's because of sustainability and the perception that uh, meat is harming the planet, there's a lot of things that go into it. Uh, you could argue it's health and wellness, although if you look at something like the Impossible Whopper, it actually has more calories and fat than the traditional Whopper does. So, uh, you know, clearly they're selling that not necessarily because of health, but because of other things. Uh, so I would argue that plant-based proteins are uh, something, and, you know, you could argue it's already here, but it's something we, you know, we keep seeing more and more chains that are getting involved with that. The other thing is uh, what the impact of uh, legalization of marijuana is going to have on the industry. Uh, and that's true not only in the context of how it impacts the consumer visits, but also what it's doing to the menu, right? So 
uh, a lot of interest in CBD as a uh, as an ingredient uh, within um, within different menu items, and whether it's beverages, cocktails, whether it's food items. Now, there's still some you know federal legislative issues that need to you know really uh, be handled before most big manufacturers start uh, throwing their hat uh, into this ring. But, uh, you know, marijuana is legal up in Canada and it's legalized in, in a number of states. And so I think that's something that the industry is starting to try and figure out, you know, what what is going on with this and, and how do we take advantage of that? So, I mean, at least from a product category perspective, those are two big things. I mean, delivery and off-premise are things that we keep hearing about, um, um, you know, and, and those, I would say those are kind of the three big things that, uh, you know, are probably most talked about when, when we go to an industry conference or, or, you know, when you talk to a restaurateur about what's impacting or could impact their business. What is the thing we should be watching with beverages over the next few years? Because it really seems, particularly if you look at public companies that have a foot in the hard seltzer space, it really seems like hard seltzer is the hot new thing. It, it is, and as a uh, Generation X person, I guess I equated to Zima back in the uh, <laughs> 80s and 90s, right? But, uh, uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, yeah, so listen, but listen, here, here's the hard truth of the matter, and we do a lot of research around beverage alcohol, is that for how challenged the restaurant business is, the beverage alcohol part of the restaurant and bar business is growing even slower. Right. And so what you end up having is, you know, if you're a restaurant that sells alcohol, not only are you faced with these overall traffic challenges that we've been talking about, but now you got to get people to, to order a drink once they come in the restaurant. And, uh, you know, essentially volume on beer, wine and spirits has all been essentially flat. Spirits is doing a little bit better. Beer has been in a slight decline. And the only reason they're, you know, keeping up is craft beer. And even that's starting to slow now. And wine has been challenged, especially in casual dining. And so, um, again, what's happening is is a change in consumer, right? They're drinking less, but they're drinking better. Uh, a lot more, uh, you know, pre-gaming, especially among younger consumers, where they don't want to spend restaurant prices when they go out to eat, so they'll drink at home. Uh, you know, you got all these delivery services that are offering uh, alcohol, where you can essentially get it on demand again, right, through Drizzly and those types of things. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the bar business is, is challenged. And so even more so than, than the food side of things, um, you know, if you're selling alcohol, you're trying to figure out how we can capture that beverage occasion. And so low alcohol drinks, because people aren't drinking as much alcohol, uh, we're seeing a lot more mocktails, right? I mean, you know, alcohol-free cocktails and then, and then these things like seltzers. And again, you know, I, it's, I'm probably not the target market for it, but it is something that uh, has, you know, taken over. It's light, refreshing. If you look at, you know, some of the non-alcohol beverage categories that are growing, sparkling water is one of the fastest growing beverages right now, whether it's sold in grocery stores or in restaurants. And so this kind of takes, you know, that uh, seltzer, sparkling water sort of trend and adds a little bit of a twist, a little bit of a spike to it. And I think that's... Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously captivated a lot of millennials and, and uh, Generation Z consumers, which I think is who it's aimed at. Um, 
And it's something that, uh, you know, has already gotten to be bigger than cider, right? And cider has been around a long time. And the fact that this has exploded the way it has, uh, you know, tells me that certainly there's a lot of interest right now. And I think the, you know, the, the question is in the staying power because like Zima, which, you know, when I was in college was, you know, sort of the next top thing. And within five years it was gone. Um, these seem like they have a little bit more staying power given the, the demographic interest and, and focus that they have. Um, but, you know, that's the, the underlying trends are, are clear in terms of low alcohol, you know, refreshing, you know, aimed at the at-home occasion. I mean, all of those things are really helping drive, uh, you know, thing, things like the, uh, the spiked seltzer. David Henkes, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You can follow David on Twitter, at David Henkes, and you can learn more at technomic.com. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Austin Morgan. The show's mixed by Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Career. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.